Good morning. The sermon reading for this morning is Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, hello again. Please, if you have your Bibles, keep them open at that bit of Haggai. We've um, been looking at Haggai for, what, the past month or so now, and I think it'd be great. Hopefully, uh, you've come to know Haggai a bit better than you might have before, so I think it'd be wonderful to, after we finish this series, to go home and then read it through again right from the beginning and see um, uh, if you have a better understanding now of this part of God's Word that maybe you hadn't spent that much time in previously. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, as you have promised, your steadfast love is indeed new every morning. We can know that as the sun rises on a new day, your love for us will never cease, uh, that whatever yesterday or last night held for us, that in Jesus we can be absolutely confident of your love. And Father, we pray that in that confidence now we will sit under your word, uh, that you'll give us by your spirit hearts of faith and hands that are ready to live out what you say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, almost every week in church, we pray a prayer that Christians have been praying together for nearly 2,000 years. You know what I'm talking about, right? The Lord's Prayer, that's right. And just to begin our time together this morning, I want to think for a moment about one small line in that prayer, your kingdom come. And I want to ask the question, when you pray that line, your kingdom come, what is it that you are asking for? What are you asking God to do when you pray your kingdom come? And perhaps if we were to think about it a little bit more and reflect on it, what is it that prompts you to pray that, that line? other than just that you're reciting the Lord's Prayer? What is it that causes you to ask God, your kingdom come? And I ask that question and I, and I raise that because this very little bit of Haggai that we're looking at this morning was spoken to people who were longing to see God's kingdom come among them. This prophecy speaks to that longing that they had. And I want to suggest that this prophecy has actually already been fulfilled in part, but in a very significant way. But also that there is still part of it that we haven't yet seen and that we are still looking forward to and that we still pray for. So that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Let's have a look at what it has to say. The first point that we're going to see in this short prophecy is that God's kingdom needs a king. God's kingdom needs a king. Notice that this prophecy, if you've got your Bibles open there, if we've got it on the screen there, excellent, um, is, is directed just to one person. Did you notice that? It's directed to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. 
Now, he's come up, he's been referenced right throughout Haggai, but I haven't really made much of that reference so far. But today we are going to focus on this because, as I said, this prophecy is all about him. And there are two things that we need to notice about Zerubbabel if we are going to understand this prophecy about him. And that is his family and his title. We're told that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel, which is a bit of a mouthful, well done for the Bible readers over this month pronouncing that. But if we were to give a longer name of his family history, it would be Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Jeconiah, king of Judah. Jeconiah, Shealtiel, sorry, Zerubbabel's grandfather, was the king of Judah when the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem and they took him into exile. And so Zerubbabel, who is mentioned here, is the grandson of that king and heir to the throne. Which brings us to the next point about Zerubbabel, his title, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Do you notice that governor of Judah and particularly not king of Judah? We've already been told in Haggai, actually, who who is the king, right? It's in the date. Every time the date is mentioned, it is the second year of King Darius. King Darius the Persian, who ruled a vast empire, including this small part of it, Israel and Judah. So do you see the problem here? What was the nation, what was the kingdom of Israel and Judah is now just the province of Judah with a governor, not a king, Zerubbabel. As I was thinking about this, imagine if something similar happened to the British monarchy. This week I I googled the formal title of Queen Elizabeth. It's it's quite a mouthful, quite impressive really. It's this, Queen Elizabeth, Queen of the United, sorry, Elizabeth II, Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith. That's the title of Queen Elizabeth. And you know the heir, who's the heir after her? Charles, and then William. Okay, so imagine grandson of the Queen, William, in decades to come after, after Elizabeth, after Charles, and you hear his title announced. And it says, William, son of Charles, son of Elizabeth, Mayor of London. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? Something's obviously gone wrong to the vast British Empire if the heir to the throne of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the other realms and territories and so on is now just the Mayor of London. No offence to the Mayor of London. What's happened there. Has there been another world war? Has some other nation come and taken over and, and demoted the, the heir to the throne to just being a middle-ranking civil servant? That's kind of like what we're seeing here in Haggai and with regard to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor, uh, son of Jeconiah, governor of Judah. He's under the authority of another king, of a foreign king, Darius. He's heir to the throne, but not the king. And so that's our point here. The the kingdom of God needs a king. It's kind of in the title, but they don't have one. So what they need is for God to shake things up, which is exactly what he says he is going to do. And this is our next point, that God will overturn all other kingdoms 
and its power. Let me read from verse 21. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. God is going to shake things up. And we heard about this a little bit two weeks ago. It will be like the unstoppable power of an earthquake. Earthquakes tend to change things, right? After an earthquake, nothing is the same. Things are broken, things have moved around, everything is different. But this shaking that God will do is going to be a cosmic earthquake. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. Imagine the stars shaking in an earthquake. And particularly, he says, he's going to overturn the kingdoms of the world. Royal thrones and the power of foreign kingdoms shattered. Chariots and horses and riders overthrown. Now, overturning horses and chariots might not seem that impressive to us, but horses and chariots were the military power of the day. So it's like saying God is going to destroy the tanks and missiles of the world. And nuclear power, gone. That's the kind of world-changing event that God is talking about. That's the power that God says he, he has to overthrow world superpowers and their military might. Everything that stands against him and his kingdom. And you notice that Zerubbabel and the Israelites, they don't have to, have to do anything. God says each will fall by the sword of his brother. This is not a call to arms for Zerubbabel to take up swords along with a small band of people in Jerusalem. It's a word of comfort and confidence that God is going to do something. And when he does, everything is going to change. God is going to shake things up. And there is a special significance that God is giving to Zerubbabel in all of this. He is going to be God's signet ring. Let me read verse 23 now. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. You know what a signet ring is, right? That you use to make an imprint in a wax seal. We've actually got a signet ring, although after moving house twice, I don't know where it is. Maybe Helena does. It's got an H imprinted on it. I like to say that's an H for Hall, but it's actually H for Helena because she had it way before we were married. But it's great. It's got this bit of wax that you melt and you drip it onto the paper and you, and you press it down and it makes a, a nice-looking H on the paper. Now, that's kind of just a, a novelty, really, to make nice-looking letters and, and seals on envelopes. But in ancient times, a signet ring was far more significant than that. It was the seal that a king used to sign official documents. It was the seal of authority that said, this is the king's word. It was so important that the king would usually keep it physically with him at all times so it wouldn't be stolen because with that, you could execute commands with the authority of the king. In fact, just to kind of illustrate that, there's a story in One Kings of someone using a signet ring to execute the commands of the king. It was when there was a bad king, Ahab, and his worst wife, Jezebel, 
And one day, Jezebel found her husband Ahab the king sulking. He was sulking because someone wouldn't sell him his vineyard. Naboth wouldn't sell the king his vineyard. And so Jezebel decided to take matters into her own hands. She she wrote letters in the king's name and she took the signet ring and she sealed them with the king's signet ring. And those letters had Naboth falsely accused and executed. Because they were sealed with the king's signet ring, they had the authority of the king. Now, as I said, that's a bad example of a use of a king's signet ring, but it does demonstrate its purpose. And now God is saying, Zerubbabel, you will be like my signet ring. God is going to carry out his purposes through Zerubbabel. God's plans, his authority are going to be enacted and and actioned through him, through Zerubbabel. That's the promise that God is making. And this promise, I think, takes on even more significance when we recognise, when we remember that God has spoken of his signet ring before. In fact, God spoke of his signet ring with regard to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah. This is what he said. It wasn't good news that time. He said this. Have we got that on the, on the slide, Sam? I think we do. It's out of order, though, I think. I'll just go forward a couple, maybe. No. Okay, it's not there. It says this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still tear you off. That was God saying he would cast aside the king of Judah. It's like a a dramatic scene in in a movie where a bride-to-be has just had an argument with her fiancé, you know, that typical scene, and and, and so she takes off the engagement ring and she throws it into the ocean, says, we're done, that's it. That was God casting off Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah, no longer my signet ring, is what he said. And that was particularly devastating because this was the royal line of David. Ever since the time of King David, the the king of Israel was to rule as God's representative, as God's agent on earth. And here was God tearing him off and throwing him away. Enough is enough, God said. I'm throwing you out. And so the hopes for the line of King David dwindled. Which is why here in Haggai, we have Zerubbabel, not a king, just a governor with barely any authority and easily replaced by a wave of King Darius's hand. But now, Zerubbabel, sorry, God says to Zerubbabel, I will make you like my signet ring. After casting aside his grandfather, God is putting his signet ring back on. He is re-establishing hope in the line of King David. Hope that had been lost two generations earlier when Jeconiah was taken into exile. That hope now returns and Zerubbabel is the man who God has chosen. Now this prophecy was made about two and a half thousand years ago. What does that mean and how is it fulfilled That's a question, isn't it? How was this prophecy fulfilled? Because there was no great shaking up of the world powers under Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel didn't become a king, nor did Israel become a mighty nation 
under him. The nations did get shaken up from the time of Zerubbabel onwards. Nations rose and fell, but they were always replaced by another. After the Persians, it was the Greeks. After the Greeks, it was the Romans. But 500 years later, in the very first chapter of the New Testament, we hear of Zerubbabel again. It's in Matthew chapter 1. Now, as I read Matthew chapter 1, it's one of those parts of the Bible that people tend to skim over pretty quickly because it's got a genealogy in it, you know, just a whole bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. I've never heard someone tell me that, that Matthew chapter 1 is their favourite part of the Bible. I've never heard it read at a wedding. But it's massively significant and relevant for the prophecy of Haggai. And it begins, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then down the list we go through Abraham and David and Solomon, through Jeconiah, Shealtiel, through Zerubbabel, and down to Jesus. And if we got that far through the Bible and and stopped reading there, it actually still tells us a lot. If we close our Bible at that point, after having read the Old Testament, it actually tells us a lot. And this genealogy should make us excited because it tells us that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the son of David that the hopes of the kingdom of God were placed upon. And when Jesus begins his public ministry, what does he say? He says, the kingdom of God is now at hand. He says, the kingdom of God has come among you. But again, his kingdom didn't overthrow horses and chariots. It didn't shake up the political world as many hoped and expected that it would. Because in the end, a political solution to the problems of the world was never going to be the answer for the kingdom of God. What we needed first was a spiritual solution. And it was that solution that shook the heavens and the earth. Did you know that at the death of Jesus and at the resurrection of Jesus, there was an earthquake? It physically shook the earth. But more than that, it symbolised the cosmic significance, the great shaking that was going on. That in that moment, Jesus disarmed and overturned the spiritual powers and authorities that stood against us. And in fact, Sharon just read that in Colossians chapter 2. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has taken his throne as the king of God's eternal kingdom. And this is the first part of what it means for us, that the doors of the kingdom are already open, that those who turn to the king, who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, which was what Jesus said when he proclaimed the kingdom, repent and believe, we are part of that kingdom now. The victory is won. All opposing powers have been defeated. The king is on his throne and nothing can change that. But the second part that we need to know is, that we, that we, I guess we know, is that we don't see this now, do we? We don't, we don't see this reality. And perhaps more personally significant for us, we don't see the evidence of Jesus' rule in the world around us from day to day, do we? When we turn on the news, 
We don't see the evidence of Jesus' rule. We are still waiting for one final shaking of the heavens and the earth. There are still powers and authorities that have free reign, whether it's spiritual or political, worldly. What we do see is the negative effects of that. I remember a few years ago, I was uh, with a group of people and we were praying together. And at that, mo- at that time, there was a significant event that had, had gone on in the world, a, b- a bad thing. And some of the people in the group were praying about that. And one particular friend of mine, she kind of wanted to pray, started to pray, but she was so choked up with, with, with emotions and with tears about what was going on in the world that she couldn't speak. All she could manage to say was the words, come Lord Jesus, your kingdom, come. That's all she could manage. And you know, the the sad thing is, as I reflect back on that, I remember the moment quite clearly, but I can't actually remember what particular bad thing that was going on in the world at the time. Because the reality is, there are lots of bad things going on in the world all the time, aren't there? There's plenty of things that it could have been. And for Christians... There's always things that can make us think, where is this going? What is, what is happening in the world? Maybe it's stuff that's going on politically in the world at the moment that makes you, you worried and think, what's happening here? Maybe it's when you see opposition to, to God and to the message of Jesus and persecution of Christians and you wonder, where is this going to lead in our generation? Maybe you see the tide of public opinion shifting and you think, what is happening? What we see around us is a world that is not clearly submitting to the rule of God's King, Jesus. And we want God to do something about that. We want his kingdom to come. And so we pray, your kingdom come. But as we pray that, and this is the important bit, We do so knowing that the victory of that kingdom has already been won. And God has promised that he will shake the heavens and the earth once more and finally, completely. And that's the moment when we will see and we will experience in every way the victory that Jesus has already won. We will see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the rule of King Jesus will be clear for everyone to see. That's what we look forward to. And just very briefly to to finish, I just want to point to two things that this will mean for us, and and I'm really just going to kind of bullet point them. The first one is that we live with expectation rather than uncertainty and fear about the things that are, are going on around us. We live with expectation because we know that Jesus' kingdom will come. It it will come in all its fullness. And we can be absolutely confident of that no matter what. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that we live the life of that kingdom now. And that could be a whole series of sermons, but just to point to it. We live the life of that kingdom now. We live with Jesus as king now because he is. He is on his throne now. And we speak of Jesus as king now because he is, and he tells us to tell the world that he is king. And as we do that, it will make us all the more eager to see that day when every knee will bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is King, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do look at the world around us and we see a world that is not clearly submitting to the rule of King Jesus and the pain and the suffering that that causes and the dishonour to your name that it brings and we long to see your kingdom come on earth as it does in heaven. And so, Father, we pray that it will. We pray that King Jesus will return and, and bring on earth the rule that he is already exercising. And, Father, we pray that as we wait for that, as we long for that, that we will live for that kingdom, that we will live with Jesus as our king and that we will proclaim Jesus as the king. And we pray this to the glory of your name. Amen.